His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, you and I may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they've been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Pretty powerful passage of scripture. Hey? His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him. Um, I want to do a bit of a recap of what we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks and just make sure everybody's on the same page. We started off by looking at the promises of God. That scripture is full of promises that God's put in front of us that we need to step into and possess those promises. They're, they're godly mandates for us, but they can be just words on a piece of paper until we possess them as our own and take them on and say, yes, Lord, that's for me. And every one of those promises will be fulfilled. It's not like a, a maybe or, or it might. If God says a promise, sets a promise up and we live that promise or walk in that promise, it's yes and amen. It will come true. It's an ironclad guarantee because God's spoken it and ordained it. Ordained it. And we, we need to be people that trust in those promises, that appropriate them deep into our lives and say, yes, Lord. If you've said it, then I believe it. If you say no weapon formed against me will prosper, then I believe that it doesn't matter what the enemy does, he won't tear me down. He won't bring me down because God's promised something far greater. And we've just been singing about that. Hallelujah, our God reigns. So if God says it, if he mandates it, if he's spoken it out as a proclamation of his promise and we step into that, then we stand in the truth of that promise and the strength of that promise and the certainty of that promise. It's yes and amen. And that's why you'll often hear in churches when someone preaches a truth, you know, you'll hear the black people go, amen, brother, I believe that. What they're doing is appropriating that promise and saying, that's for me. It's for me. It's my promise and I'm going to hold on to that. And so we looked at the promises of God and, and Scripture and we looked at the fact that we don't get to pick and choose which bits of the gospel or Christianity we like or don't like. We've got to step into the fullness of the counsel of God's Word. And we looked at the fact that denominations tend to take out the bits that they like and they've tend to neglect the bits that they don't like. And we were talking about that in the context of being a charismatic church that was full of power, that one of the greatest promises that God gave us was that he would send his spirit 
and that his spirit would give us power and that power would enable us or equip us to live the Christian life. And without that power, we're setting ourselves up to fail. It's great to have repentance and be reconciled with the Father. And we do that because we believe in Jesus, who he was, what he did on the cross, that he died, was resurrected. resurrected. But he said, the greatest gift that I'm going to give you is that my spirit's going to come. That's a promise. But we have to step into the promise that God has given us and possess that promise. And so we step into our allegiance to the Holy Spirit and into the, the inheritance that is ours in the spirit of the living God. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That was the greatest promise of God that he was going to come and habitate in the hearts of men and women. We wouldn't have to go to the temple. We wouldn't have to go through a priest. We'd have this inner relationship with the spirit of the living God. And the evidence of that would be power, supernatural power that would demonstrate that God dwelt with us. And the problem that we have in many of our churches is there's no power. We're not a people of power. We're trying to be persuasive instead of letting just the presence and the power of God evidence the fact that we worship a God for whom nothing is impossible. And that word power is that word dunamis, which is where we get our word dynamite. It's an explosive power. It's literally a force or miraculous power. It's, it just means we're workers of miracles. And that's married to the fact that the presence of God dwells with us. And anybody whether you're rich or poor or young or old or black or white, if the presence of God dwells in you and you operate out of those promises, then nothing will be impossible. We're able to do what Jesus did because Jesus lives here. He resides in us by his spirit. So we need to be a people of power. And we looked at all the different parts of Acts where the evidence of the coming of the Holy Spirit and indwelling people's hearts was miracles, miracles, miracles. Miracles, miracle after miracle after miracle. Paul's handkerchief was passed around and people were healed. That's the power of God. We need to be a church of power. And that's not a bit of scripture that we can just pick and choose from. If there's not power, we need to go back and ask why there's no power in our life. Because there should be. It's the normal Christian process. But a lot of our denominations don't teach that. They don't walk us or disciple us into that truth and that knowledge And we need to proclaim that clearly, that we need to be a people of power. Here's the problem. What's happening in the Western church is that churches are trying to be culturally relevant. Okay, We're trying to adapt our style, our preaching, our message, what we do, so that it's, co- it's compatible and palatable for the world. So that if someone from you know, the community walks in here, they're not shocked or offended or they can understand. But the problem with that mentality is that we're supposed to be e- equipping saints to change the culture. We're not trying to mirror the culture or match the culture. We're trying to bring a kingdom culture. And a kingdom culture is power. That's how Jesus demonstrated it. They said, by what authority do you operate? He said, by that authority, the kingdom that I represent. And there was power. And so we've got to have that power. We've got to be a church that's on fire so that any saint 
stepping into a situation where there needs to be power that comes can feel confident that they can do that because it's God-ordained. And then we looked at last week, this thing's playing up, we looked last week that there's a difference between power and authority because power is something that you and I experience. When someone lays hands on us and we receive the Holy Spirit, anything could happen. But there's an experiential thing that happens in our life. But then we step out of that power into the authority that God has given us. So Jesus went back to the right hand of the Father and he said he would send his spirit, one just like me, a comforter, a counsellor, an advocate, so that he could continue his work. Because Jesus is both God and man. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's forever God and man. So he's not a spirit that can be everywhere. But the Holy Spirit is the vicar of Christ. He's the representative of Christ on earth in you and me. So everywhere you and I step, we take the kingdom of God with us because we take the king and the king's enthroned in our hearts and we live for him. So therefore, our lives are aligned and in allegiance to King Jesus. And so this is where it gets really exciting because we have authority, authority that's been bestowed upon us, given to us as the children of the Most High God. Jesus said, I have given you authority. It's a different word to power. Power is dunamis, authority is exousia, and it means that we have been given jurisdiction or a, or a delegated permission or authority to act. And Jesus said, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. So we're in this conflict, this battle between the power of God and the power of Satan. And we know that Scripture tells us for our battle is not against flesh and blood. We're not fighting people. We're fighting principalities and powers in the invisible realm. And God says to us, we can trample on those principalities and powers. Snakes and scorpions are just representative of Satan and demons. And we can overcome all of the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. And this root word, exousia, is really like to operate like a magistrate. Like, it's like a legal um, transaction where I say, no, you don't have authority. God does have authority in this situation. And we exact that authority into whatever situation we face. Through prayer or through ministry, whatever it is, we can claim the ground that God has said is his. You can take back from the enemy what he thinks is his. But, but we have to believe that we're capable of doing that. It's, it's a God-given authority. And I share with you how little grannies can get hold of that and they can pray. My little granny's here today. My mum's here. And, and she's someone who understands that principle and she prays for people. She prays for marriages. She prays and she prays and she prays in her little bedroom because she knows that supernaturally in the heavenly realm, something is changing because of her prayer. Now, she hasn't been given authority by the government. She hasn't been given authority by anybody except for Jesus. He said, Pat, get in your bedroom and pray and pray and pray and pray. And she would give testimony to the many miracles she's seen because of the authority that she's exacting. It's a mindset. It really is a mindset. And that's where the enemy comes to us. This thing's really playing out. So knowing that you possess power, you know you've got power because it's happened to you. Something's happened and, oh, wow, something's happening in me and, or something that you do produces power. But authority comes from understanding that we've been adopted as the sons and daughters of the Most High God. 
Like Matthew has to work out his identity because he's been adopted into the Wilson family. And he struggles with that. But one day the lights will go on and he'll understand I'm a Wilson. And therefore I'm entitled to everything that Mark has as his share of the inheritance. It's not much, unfortunately, for, for Matthew. But that's his identity now. He's been grafted into our family. He's legally ours. And that's what Jesus has done. He's adopted us into his family. And therefore, we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. And we need to wear that label like a, a proud badge that we are children of the Most High God. So authority is not about experience. It's about understanding identity. It's not what we feel or experience. It's what we know God has said about us. So if God says I'm his son, then I have sonship and all the benefits that come through sonship. The whole problem with power and authority is that the enemy wants to negate that. You think about it. If the enemy can get the church or individuals in the church not to operate in power, then the world will never change. And if the enemy can somehow minimise our understanding of how much authority that we have, then we become impotent and ineffectual. And that's what's happened in Western Christianity, is that we've sought after God through programs and we've sought after God without truly understanding who we are in him. And what the modern church needs to do is stop worrying about programs and not start worrying about our style and go back to the truth of God's message and equip the saints to bring the kingdom into the world. Then we will see the changes that we're looking for. So it's not working. It hasn't been working for generations. The charismatic movement came up and there was a surge in the 70s or the 80s, there was this charismatic renewal and it was like God was trying to say, wake up, church. Some of what you've got is okay, but you need the whole counsel of God. You can't just pick and choose the bits that you want. You need to move in the spirit because that's the culmination of the promises, to possess the spirit of the living God as one who is Lord of your life and out of that relationship. So the Bible doesn't say be transformed or conform to the pattern of the world. It says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you understand who you are and what God has given you. And then you can be a real powerful minister for the gospel of God. So we need to understand our identity. So last week we looked at how really this is where the battle is lost and won in between our ears, in our minds, because our mindset determines who we think we are. And our mindset determines what we think we're capable of of achieving, holding God's hand. And, and what we don't understand is that our brains are constantly doing surgery on our brain by the thoughts and the attitudes that we allowed to prevail in our head. And this is where the enemy wants to win. He wants to get us thinking we're less than we really are. He wants to get us thinking we're inadequate. He wants to get us thinking we have no, you know, we have no, not enough knowledge or not enough experience. And that's not God's kingdom profile. God called fishermen and tax collectors and simple people to understand simple truths to do simple things. It's a message that has to translate into every culture, every tribe, every tongue. It has to be translated to the pygmies in, in Papua New Guinea, into the Amazon, you know. It has to be a message that everybody can get. So if it comes with a scholarly degree, it makes no sense. 
Jesus did simple things with simple people to make them extraordinary because they understood who they were in Jesus. It's not because of what we've done, it's because of what we've been given. So the war is invisible and we need to, we looked at last week, we need to take captive those thoughts that bring us down, those seeds that the enemy plants in our minds. We've got to grab them and make them obedient to Christ and say, no, that's a lie. That's not who I am. You tell me I'm worthless? Well, my God says that he's lavished his love in my life. He gave his life for me. So we counteract a lie for a truth. And we build up this strength or steely mindset wherever the enemy comes and throws a dart, it's met with, I will love you, Lord, my shield. And so I hold up my shield, which is the word of God that tells me who God says about me. And that's not arrogance. That's just proclaiming the yes and amen of the promises of God that God has said, Mark, this is who you are now. The old is gone. The new has come. You've got a new identity. That died. This rose. My spirit's in you. Therefore, go into the world and be my witness. But you can only be a witness if you've got power and authority. So the disciples, just ordinary men, went into villages and said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. What happened? Rose up and walk. Why? Because they had some magical power? No, because the Spirit of God was operating through them, which is the only way the gospel can go to the world. The gospel is not just a proclamation of truths. It's an evidence of those truths that marry together. It's word and spirit. It has to be that way. Otherwise, we're going to try and intellectually convince people that God is real. That's part, one half. The other part is that 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 message is substantiated in the physical realm by tangible you know, proof that what we proclaim is actually true. So we talk about a God who can heal. We talk about a God who can supply. We talk about a God who can do you know, anything. So when the anything situation comes to us, we just stand back and say, Jesus, what do you want to do here? And we believe that God has given us the authority to pray. What happens in so many of our church circles is that we default that right and privilege to the professionals. And we default that right and privilege to those who've had greater experience. When what the church should be doing is equipping the saints and saying, Trent, come and do this. Come and do this. Come and learn. We've got to equip people to step into this. This whole context of sitting around listening to one person, it's backward. It's upside down. Because it's really like you're, you're sitting at the wealth of wisdom of one person. Yes, there is teaching. But if you default the work of ministry to a handful of people, then mathematically we can't impact the world. It has to be multiplied out. And so the scripture says God gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. Who does all the work of ministry? The apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And so we, whoever is leading, have got to get a revelation that we've got to stop being the ones that do everything and nurture people into doing the work of ministry, giving them the know-how and the, and the, and the experience to do it. So when those battles are happening in our mind, what we need to do is learn that Satan is called the accuser. He'll accuse you of certain things. 
He started in the Garden of Eden when he said to Adam, did God really say that to you? He put an accusation out there. And what we've got to learn to do is accuse him back. Accuse the accuser. When he comes and says, you know, Sophie, you're useless. You need to counteract that and say, well, I'm not useless because God has said. And I want to remind you, Satan, of who you are and who your destiny is and where you belong because you belong under my feet because God has given me authority to trample snakes and scorpions. So if Satan comes and he drops a thought in your head and you don't negate it, then he wins. He gets a little way in. He's looking for the defensive Christians that say, well, they're rubbish. I'm not believing that lie. That's not truth. And the more that we do that, we steal our minds and every dart that the enemy sends at us gets thrown back at him. He'll very quickly get tired of that and leave you alone. He'll go and find somebody else who's weaker and doesn't have those defences. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. That's what Satan does. That's his modus operandi. It's accusation. John, who are you? You're a Canadian. You were born in Canada. You'll never relate to the Australian people. You've got nothing to offer. Why don't you just pack up and go home? Or he will say something like, John, you've been divorced. That's the ultimate sin in the kingdom of God. You'll never be trusted in ministry. Bet you Satan said that to you, hey? Exactly. Why? Because he wants to tear him down. And so what's John got to learn to do? He's got to say, well, maybe I've made some mistakes. Maybe I do come from Canada. Whatever it is. (laughs) That might be the way you see it, Satan, but it's not the way God says it about me. He says this about me. He doesn't care what country I come from. He cares that I'm a citizen of heaven. Therefore, if I'm seated in the heavenly realms with Christ, my perspective is looking down. It's not going, I'm under this. It's I'm on top of this. We stand our ground and we fight for the kingdom of God. So finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggles, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, because of that fight going on in the invisible realm, put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you will be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Truth, counteract lies with truth with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Satan will remind you of every unrighteous thing you've ever done. And you remind him, well, that was dealt with. I'm now seen through the eyes of Jesus. I've been justified. I'm right with God. I'm right with my Lord and King. You can't throw that at me anymore. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arts Uh, flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. So that's where we got to. So any initiative in the spiritual fight has to come from an offensive position. We can't be passive Christians. 
We can't be Christians that stand back and say, well, I'm not going to enter the fight. Because by aligning yourself with the Lord, you're already in the fight. You've, you've made a decision which side that you are on. And so we've aligned ourselves to the Lord. And the Lord says, well, here's one of my warriors. And he's got a whole blueprint of your life mapped out where he wants you to fight for him and fight for his kingdom. The question is whether we're going to step into that fight and take up the role and responsibility. So we've got to come from a victory mindset. You know, a demeanour that, that we're trampling. I don't mean that arrogantly. I just mean that confidently in the promises of God, that who we are in him is what matters. Now, that's sort of like the icing that goes around. That, to me, that's the, the most beautiful part of eating everything that God puts before us. Like God says he prepares a banquet for us. And the best part of that blank, banquet is power and authority because that's where the change comes. That's where the lives are transformed. That's where we see the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan collide and we see the victory in those power encounters. But we've got to make sure that all of that comes out of love. Because if it doesn't stem from love, if it doesn't flow from love, then, then it can be authority and power that's cruel. And it's out of love that we should be operating in that power of authority because we know that those people are bound by the enemy. And we want to get in there and fight to get them unbound, to loose those chains, to break those strongholds. It comes out of love. Because if it doesn't come from love, then we won't, have, we won't have compassion and we'll get tired and it will look too big for us. Like the scripture says, never grow weary in doing good. And you guys all know what it's like to be in that battle and you get tired and you get worn out and it just seems so insurmountable sometimes and you give and you give and then people fall over and you've got to pick them up again. And sometimes it's just like being, it's just such hard work that you just feel like going, I've got nothing left to give anymore, God. I don't have, I've lost my love. I've lost my love for people. And so if love is not the inner driving force, then, then that power authority is going to get warped. It's got to come from love. This is what Paul said. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Anybody that's listened to a drummer playing knows that cymbals can become very irritating. And Paul is saying that it doesn't matter how gifted you are. You can speak in tongues of angels and men and you can look wonderful, but if that's not coming from a heart of love, it's going to get irritating and annoying. It's not going to be received the way that it needs to be. If I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to the hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. So it's almost like when Paul was writing to the Corinthian church, they were a church that were pursuing power and they were pursuing authority. But Paul was saying don't lose the context, that those things are vitally important but they come and stem from love. The biggest impartation we have to receive coming in and in turn convey to others is love. 
when the Old Testament prophets began to prophesy about the Spirit of God being poured out into the lives of men, Ezekiel particularly talked about God exchanging a heart of stone for a heart of flesh. A heart of stone is a heart that's selfish, that says, I'm in this for me, that says, I'm out to get my pound of flesh in life. You know, but a heart, a heart of flesh is completely the opposite. It's saying, I'm a servant. I'm a giver. I'm going to expend my life by loving others. A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. Because if you think about a heart, like a heart of stone, nothing permeates it. It can be indifferent. It can be apathetic. There's all sorts of things that a stony heart won't take on and it won't give out. It can't permeate the exterior of the stone. But a heart of flesh is really like a sponge. Stuff goes in, and when it's squeezed, stuff comes out. So if we're filled with love, if God's love has really changed us inside, then our whole lives as they get squeezed will be about that love oozing out to other people. Now we love because he first loved us. So I want you to think about passion. Okay, the word passion. If someone's passionate, it means they're convinced, they're sold out, they believe these things, they go after these things. We should be passionate people because we've been loved passionately. To truly understand the gospel is to know the extent to which God went to love on us. And the scriptures say, see how much God has lavished his love upon us, like lavished layered it on us by what he's done for us. And when we recognise how much God has done for us, then we're passionate about him, about who he is, about the way he operates, about the way he wants to change the world. And that's the vertical part of love, but then it becomes horizontal because we learn to live out of that love to love others. If you don't have that love, you're going to get very tired and weary trying to love other people. They'll frustrate you, they'll annoy you. In the end, you'll just give up. And you know, Satan loves to just wear us out and wear us down and get us offside with people. And then that brotherly love isn't flowing horizontally. Remember last week we talked about how the manifold wisdom of God was to be evidenced in the church to prove to the principalities and powers that the church was God's vessel to change the world. So if Satan looks into the church and he sees a whole lot of vertical passion, but he doesn't see the horizontal passion, then he's not threatened. Because this has to translate into this, into horizontal. See. See, he who has no love in their heart has no knowledge of God because God is love. So, so to truly understand who Jesus is and the extent that he's went to for us means that our hearts are overwhelmed and, and, and overcome by a sense of love and indebtedness to God. And then that transforms itself into a horizontal giving of ourselves to whoever, whenever, however. We just love 
and we love and we love and we love and we love when it makes no sense. We love the people that hurt us. We love our enemies. We, we have this upside down love where we give and we give and we give and we give. That's why we call Catalyst a revolution of love because it is revolutionary. In the natural realm, it makes no sense to love like that. But it stems from the love that's been lavished into our hearts. So whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother and sister is a liar. The two are incompatible. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God who they have not yet seen. So We've got to understand that we've got to have hearts full of love that translate into love for one another. And so the church, this community of people that interact in relationships here should demonstrate more than anything else, not just power, not just authority, but love for one another a brotherly, sisterly love. Now, most of you would say you've never been to a church where that happens perfectly. It doesn't because we're all people on a journey trying to be like Christ. But whenever there is tension, whenever there's issues, whenever there's obstacles, we've got to respond out of a heart of love. We've got to learn to get over our disappointments, to get over our sensitivities, to get over being mothered and stand strong in the identity that God's given us and operate in grace and in mercy and in love. And when the church can really do that, then it will be the powerhouse that God wants us to. Like every epistle that Paul writes, he writes something like, make my joy complete by being of one mind, of being in unity. And, and that whole context of us being interrelated and interconnected is being lost because church is about coming to an event or coming to something where where we sit and receive and we go home and we say we've been blessed i'm sorry that's not the family of god how can it be a family if you don't know the people how can it be the family of god if you don't go through those awkward things of being so close to each other that it begins to rub up the wrong way And we work through the rubbing up the wrong way so that we mature. So, you know, God has given us, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Therefore, add to your life, godliness, faithfulness, perseverance, all the things that go that you need for longevity in relationships. What happens in church is when we get a little bit offended or we get someone rubs us off the, up the wrong way, or, or a leader fails us, or someone doesn't do what we think that they should do. We get up on our high moral ground, and, and oftentimes if we let that thought pattern flow, we're out. And I'll tell you what, Satan just claps his hands and says, well done, you just gave me everything I needed to throw back at you that you don't have perseverance, that you don't have commitment, that you don't have loyalty, and, and, and he's got ammunition to throw then. And so we've got to live our lives in such a way that, that we don't give him that ammunition and we work through the hardships of relationships that, went, that don't work well. It doesn't matter which church you go to. You can go to Wine Press, you can go to Planet Shakers, you can go to Packenham Baptist Church. I don't care where you go. You're going to face this. We're all going to face this. It's part of being the family of God. And what the church has got to do is work harder at the nitty-gritty and less at the glory-glory and get down to the nuts and bolts, roots of stuff that we've got to journey through life that, with people that aren't like us and we don't think like them. And so therefore they will be different to us. But that's where the wisdom of God is proved virtuous. 
when we can actually journey with people and get through those obstacles and love them. Now, the principle is if we can't love one another in here, then we have no hope out there. Let's not even talk about out there. It's got to start here. It's got to start here in loving one another. So the Bible says if you have something against your brother, go and get two or three people and have a good gossip session about it and rip them to pieces. It says go to them, sort it out, be honest, go and say, is there something wrong? And most of the time when you do that, you discover that what you thought was this big is about this big. But we don't have the courage and the guts to do it because we don't operate out of love. Now, love is not just doing everything to keep people happy. Christian love is tough love because it comes with responsibility. It comes with boundaries. It comes with, you know, stepping into everything that God wants us to be. The message of the church of Jesus Christ is not to be watered down. You can't change the message. And you can shoot the messengers, but you've got to keep the message the same if the church is going to keep its integrity. And it's got to come from love. So what I want to ask you today, if I was to measure, if I had a, there's this really cool thing that's come out now. You know when you've got a gas bottle on your barbecue and you can never tell if it's empty or full and your people come over for a barbecue and you're halfway through and the gas goes out? There's a little thing now that you can just, it's like a magnet. It sits, sits on the side of the bottle and it tells you how full it is. You don't need an expensive $30 valve. You just need this little $5 magnetic thing that's, and it's great. It shows you when the, when the tank is full. I reckon we need one of those on our heart that, that helps us understand when we're getting empty of love because, because love is the key to all of this. I love power. I want to see the church be full of power and I want to see the church stand in its authority but it's only going to come when we truly learn to love like Jesus did. He was the benchmark. What was his new command? A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. It's really that simple. But we haven't got that right yet. None of us have got that right. I'm not standing here saying I've got it all right. It's hard to work through the nitty-gritty of relationships, but we've got to have a commitment to that and a loyalty to that. If we are family, then you don't opt out on family. I know the world says that's all right. The world says that's fine. If you get sick of your wife, just divorce her and go and get yourself a 20-year-old wife. That's cool. More power to you because that's the world's heartbeat. Now, God's heartbeat is covenant, covenant relationship. And covenant relationships are defined by loyalty and integrity and longevity. And we need to be a people that are passionate about love. But sometimes the plugs got pulled, hey, just by life just by the busyness, just by, you know, the constant wearing away. And we've got to come to a place where we allow God to fill that tank up again. The danger is letting it run out. Hopefully we get to that point before we're empty and dry because then we'll say something or do something or sever a relationship out of frustration. But God is saying, my people are a people of love and God's love will never run dry. That's the beauty of the promises of God. They are yes and amen. And so today I just want to ask you, how's your heart of love? Are you agitated with people? Do you feel like throwing the towel in and go, oh, stuff all them Christians, I've had a gut full of them. They're all hypocrites. 
Well, we are. We're all hypocrites. But if we can work through that, if we can be honest with one another, if we can set things right when they go wrong, then we will have a greater victory than we've ever had before. And I think that's the coming challenge for the church. <laughs> I really do. Because the enemy's trying to bring all sorts of doctrines in where we, where we water down the doctrine so we please the world. What I think we've got to do is maintain the doctrine and demonstrate love. And demonstrate love. So if your heart is empty today, if you've gone dry, if you're frustrated, if you feel like you're running on empty, then let someone pray for you today just to ask God to do something supernatural to fill that tank up again. It's, it's nothing miraculous. Well, it is miraculous, but, you know, it, it's a simple step of faith to say, God, I'm dry. I'm dry. You don't think leaders get dry? We get dry. Some Sundays I get out of bed and I just think, Lord, I've got nothing left to give. I'm so tired from the week of giving, giving, giving. I'm, I'm starting to get selfish. I'm starting to say, well, why, where's everybody helping me and Matt pack up and set up? And those little thoughts begin to come. And if you let them go, suddenly what happens? You're resentful. You're frustrated. You begin to take a step back from people. When people come with their issues, you go, oh, I couldn't be bothered. You know, and God doesn't want us to be like that. He wants us to be a sponge that people can lean into. And as they lean into that sponge of your life, what oozes out all over them is the love of Jesus. And they get refreshed by you and renewed by you. But that means you've got to keep going back to the well and soaking again and coming out and getting squeezed and you go back to the well. That's the vertical. And then it's played out in the horizontal. And what I want to ask you to do is just be really honest with yourself today. If you'd like someone to pray with you, and we'll just ask God to renew that love. It might be your love for him that's gone cold. Like when Jesus wrote to the church at Laodicea, he said, you've gone cold. You've lost your first love. You've lost this one. You've lost your passion for Jesus and his kingdom. And so sometimes we've got to get the vertical right again. But then sometimes it's the horizontal that's the problem. We can have great times with God and we're okay until we step into people. <laughs> and then it's like it starts to grate with us again because we're not coming from a heart of love. And I know that happens because people disappoint us and people hurt us and they wound us. But if we don't deal with those things, we're the losers. We've got to come to God and say, God, heal my heart. Give me the capacity to love again, love you again or love others again. That's the power of the gospel, that we can love and love and love and love. Let's pray. Father, we just want to give you our hearts today. It's that simple. Lord, we know that you're the great physician, whether that be a physical thing or a spiritual thing, Lord. And Father, my prayer today is just simply in this busy season when we're caught up in so much stuff. Help us just to come to the Father. All what I love about these ch this church is the people. I don't care whether we meet at Maranatha or Mud Hut. I'm not here for the building. I don't care if we play a full drum kit or a cajon. I'm not here for the instrument. Couldn't care less what our website looks like. What I want to be able to say 
is that we're a church that loves one another. Through the good, through the bad, through the ups, through the downs. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach us as your people that love is the key. That where there's misunderstanding, Lord, you will bring us. You'll bring us through. Where there's been disappointment and hurt, Lord, you'll bring us through. Where there's been expectations that haven't been met, you'll bring us through. When we've just given and given and felt like we've never got anything back, you'll bring us through. Because you said to drink from the well of life and that you would satisfy that thirst and that it would never run dry. So Lord, we today, we just want to stop and examine our hearts and respond to you today, Lord. And say, Lord, fill my cup to the top with running water. Pour me out so that your kingdom, your kingdom of power, your kingdom of authority, your kingdom of love is known. And it's made known because of my life and the way that I live my life and the things that are important in my life. So, Father, today, touch our hearts where we're empty and dry. And I thank you that your promise is always, yes, I'll fill that heart. Yes, I'll renew your passion. Yes, I'll give you renewed compassion for those who are lost and broken and hurting and messy. Lord, sometimes we just get covered in the mess. We need you to wash us clean again. Dust us off. Pick us up. Spur us on. And send us back into the fight. So, Father, today, as we sing this simple song, would you minister to us so that we can minister to the world? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.